to cover today. So I want to go ahead and uh, I want to go ahead and get started if we if we can. All right, if you got your Bibles, oh my goodness, how did how did that get up there? I don't. Thank you. All right, now that that's over. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 21. And the title of our lesson today is The Faith Life. We're going to... This this started out was going to be a two lessons, and it ended up being a lesson and a half, and so I just scrunched it all into, into one. We're going to see three aspects today of the faith life. And um, the first aspect of, of the faith life is joy. Joy, okay? Um, let's look at... Uh, let's start in verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, when you read that verse, you, you can't help but notice just how calm it is. There, there's no suspense. Uh, there's no real build-up. Um, it it, it, it kind of reports it just as though what happened is exactly what had to happen. And that's exactly right, isn't it? You see, joy in the Christian life or in the life of faith comes in knowing that God keeps His promises. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. If He says it's going to happen, it's going to it's going to happen. And so He comes and He visits Sarah, and she has a baby, and it says just like He had promised, just like that's exactly that's the only thing that could happen, and that's that's right because God could not fail once He had promised it was going to happen. And, and that, for us, really is indicative of the life of faith. The, the Christian life really is a, a journey of, of discovering and enjoying uh, the promises uh, of God. I was thinking the other day, you know, th- there's just something in the Bible for everything. If you, if you have a fear of death and judgment, you can turn to John 5, 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, he that believes in me has passed away, is not under judgment, but has passed from from death into life. If you struggle with guilt, you can turn to scriptures like Ephesians 1, 7. It says, We have redemption, redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. If you're anxious about something or you worry, you find 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. If you're fearful, you can turn to Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's just promise after promise after promise after promise, and God cannot fail but to keep His promises. He has to, because He. what do we talk about? Even when we're not faithful, He is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. Now, we may say, well, you know, Derek, that's all well and good, but I've been asking God for some things for years, and I haven't... I haven't seen it come to pass. Well, that leads us to the second aspect of joy, and that's verse 2. And it says, And Sarah conceived and she bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. See, we need to always remember that God doesn't work according to our timetable. His timetable is completely uh, different. He made Sarah and Abraham wait for 25 years. He promises you're going to have a son, and 25 years later, they, it happens. And we may think, man, that seems like forever, right? And in fact, it would be 2,000 years, uh, roughly from the time Isaac is born, until Jesus Christ comes along. And, and by the way, generation and generation uh, come to pass and fade away, waiting for the Messiah. 
And He doesn't come, and He doesn't come, and He doesn't come. But Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That fullness of time means the right time. When everything was exactly the way God wanted it, He sent Jesus. It took Him 2,000 years, but He kept His promise. By the way, same thing is true in our life, isn't it? God has a timetable to keep His promises. You just trust Him. He will bring it to, to pass. You see, joy comes in the Christian life in knowing that God not only keeps His promises, but He does it in His own time. And we need to remember that. Verses 3 through 7. So Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means he laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Abraham and Sarah, when they were told that they would have a son, they both laughed. Um, Abraham in chapter 17, Sarah in chapter 18. And it was a laughter born out of absurdity. They, they both could not believe that God would give her a child at, at, when she's obviously past the age of, of, of childbearing. So it was a laughter of just unbelief, a laughter of, 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 of absurdity. But here, once the child is born... He's given the name, he laughs. Now this, now it changes. It's not a laughter of absurdity, but it's a laughter of joy, not of unbelief. See, God has fulfilled his promises and now that laughter has been changed into something meaningful. But this passage points out this only happened when they were old. Abraham was old, she was old. The idea here is they had gone beyond the point where they could do it themselves. Then God made it happen. Okay? See, joy comes in knowing that God keeps His promises, He keeps them in His own time, and He keeps them when we've come to the end of ourselves to try to do it our, ourselves. I think a lot of times God is just waiting for us to set aside, you know, we, we try to make it happen, don't we? We want it all today. And He's just waiting for us to set that aside and say, okay, God, now you go do what you do and let Him fulfill it in His own power. That is one aspect of the life of faith. It is a life of joy, but it is also a life of pain. Over the years, I've seen a lot of people walk away. I've seen people come down to this altar and make professions of faith, and they're not here anymore. And they've walked away from church, they've walked away from the Lord, and a lot of that, I think, is because of a disappointment in the Christian life. It, It didn't turn out to be what they thought it would be. They thought all their problems would go away, but they didn't. They thought all the conflict would go away, but it didn't. They thought they would have peace, right? But, but it turns out that the, all the conflict and the trouble, and it, it didn't give them peace at all. And, and they thought the pain would go away, but it didn't. You see, the, the Christian life is a life of pain, really in two ways. First of all, don't we experience the pain everybody else does? Don't we have loved ones that die? Don't we get sick? Don't we have people betray us? Don't we go through all that stuff just like everybody else? The Bible never makes a secret and says, oh, you won't have trouble. In fact, Jesus says you will have trouble. See, it's not that we don't go through it. We're supposed to go through it differently than they do. But we have pain. But we also have another type of pain. And I want to point this out as well. Look at verse 8. So the child grew and was weaned, 
And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now keep in mind, by the way, in those days, a child would be weaned much later than we do today. Okay, there's no refrigeration. You can't keep bottles, you know, on, on uh, refrigerated or milk refrigerated. So uh, there's not a lot to drink back then, you know. Uh, so they would have been, they would have weaned a child much longer, probably up to three or four years old. I think, I think Daddy told me a story one time about he knew a kid that would. Uh, well, never mind. We won't go down that road. <laughs> yeah, thank y'all. Anyway. Uh, but it would have, let's just say three or, three or four years old. And so, so again, he's three or four years old. Verse nine and ten. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. And therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So Ishmael was around thirteen when, when Isaac was born. So by this time, Ishmael is probably sixteen, seventeen, 18 years old. He's a, he's a young man. And you remember his mother kind of scoffed at Sarah, didn't she? She had a, some disdain for Sarah. So, so Ishmael has grown up in that environment and he's got, uh, he, he's inherited that disregard that his mother had for that side of the family. He's inherited that, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's, it, it, your, your parenting is so important in, in how your kids and how it affects your kids. And so Ishmael has grown up with this, so he's got a lot of disregard for Sarah and for Isaac. And so in the midst of this feast, Sarah looks over there and sees him mocking or making fun of, of Isaac. Now, she is obviously angered by this, and so she determines once and for all, well, something's got to be done about this. I, I'm sure for the last few years, this has been a, a mess in that household, right? It, it, it can't be good. So she finally gives Abraham an ultimatum, and that is get, with, get rid of this woman and her son. Now, I've read commentaries where commentators actually try to applaud Sarah for what she does here, that somehow she's got this spiritual insight, but I don't think that's true at all, right? I think she was jealous. I think she had a maternal instinct that I want to get what my son has coming to him, and as long as that boy is here, there's going to be problems, right? So I think this is just pure jealousy. It's pure maternal instinct, and she wants to get rid of any any rival. Now, again, we can understand this, right? She she is a believer. She's a righteous woman. She's a she's a Christian, and we all have moments. How many of y'all have moments she'd rather forget? Yeah, we all do, right? And I'm sure she would rather forget this one. It's not her best moment, but God uses even this. Look at verse eleven. Then the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son Ishmael. Now you got to remember, okay? These are just people. We've said it over and over again. They're just like us. And Abraham loves Ishmael. He loves his firstborn son. By the way, he's had, he's been with that. He had him for 13 years before Isaac came along. They would go hunting together. He would teach him about farming and, and animal husbandry. And, and they, I mean, he loved this boy. So this is a very difficult situation that Sarah has put him in. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, go ahead and listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, this is by far, up to this point, the most difficult thing 
that God has ever asked uh, Abraham to do in his hundred years. And as far, by the way, as far as we know, this will be the last time he sees this boy. He's going to go off and, and, and make his way in the world. Abraham, as far as we know, he's never mentioned again. He'll never see him again. So this is a, this is a very, very difficult thing painful thing that God is asking him to do. And by the way, I don't care how much you love God, and I don't care how much you trust God, this is a hard thing to do. And, and you don't, this is something you don't get over in a day. You don't get over it in a week. You don't get over it even in a few years. This is what we would call painful obedience. You do it, but yet it hurts. See, this is a type of, of, of pain Christians understand that a believer never understands. See, we are sometimes asked to get rid of things in our life that we don't want to get rid of. And it's painful. But God knows it's for the best. And this is what's happening here. Now, here you may wonder at this point, why would God do this? Why would God make Abraham send this boy away? Well, here's something you need to understand about this story. And that is, it is not just a story. You see, Paul tells us in the New Testament that there's more going on here than just a family conflict. There is actual a spiritual lesson happening here. Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes a letter to the church at Galatia, and he says this, and by the way, he's referring back to Abraham in this story. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Let, let, me give you, let me give you something really quick. When the Bible tells you you can interpret something allegorically or symbolically, then you go do it. If the Bible doesn't tell you you can do it, don't do it. Are you with me? I've heard people teach lessons on the Song of Solomon. Everybody ever read the Song of Solomon? It's kind of a weird book, right? And I've heard people teach the entire lessons how it's all allegorical, and the Bible never says that. The Bible never says it's allegorical. See, if, if you can interpret something allegorically, you can just reach in and make it mean anything you want it to mean. If the Bible doesn't say you can do it, don't do it. But here, Paul says you can do it. This is an allegory. It's, a, it's symbolic. And he says this, These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, though, uh, let me back up, just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Okay? So Paul is writing to the church at, at Galatia, and he says, you know how it was back then when the son of the flesh persecuted the son of the spirit or the son of the promise, he says it's the same way today. You see, the, what was happening is Jews were coming down from Jerusalem and they were telling these new Christians, you got to obey the law. you got to be circumcised. you got to follow Passover. you got to do all these things that we've been doing for years and years. And they're trying to bring them back into slavery, trying to bring them back in to be children of the flesh. And Paul said, don't do that. Don't allow that to happen. See, there, what he was saying, there was conflict at that time between those that relied on the flesh and those that trusted in the Spirit. And Paul said, just as it was then, it's the same way today. And by the way, it's the same way today. It's always that way. There will always be conflict in the life of faith between those that rely on the flesh 
and those that trust in the Spirit. And by the way, in the very next chapter, Paul writes this in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what Paul is telling us here is a life of faith always, always involves conflict. Always. See, I think people walk down an aisle and they think, well, Jesus is going to solve all my problems and all this conflict in my life is going to go away. No, it's not. No, it's not. Jesus himself said, you're going to have tribulation. Jesus himself said, don't think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I'll set family members against one another. Why? Because these side will rely on the flesh and this side will rely on the spirit. And they're going to be against one another. Not only that, you're always going to have conflict within yourself between your flesh and sin nature and, and, and the new creation that is the Spirit. So there's always going to be conflict. That is part of the life of faith. There's always going to be conflict between my flesh, what I can do in my power, and the Spirit, which is what only God can do. And by the way, the only way to resolve that conflict is to put off the deeds of the flesh. There is no peaceful coexistence. You cannot have coexistence in your life between the flesh and the spirit. That, that will not work. Never works. You have to make a decision to put away the flesh. Now, why do I bring all of that up? Well, remember the question, why would God send Ishmael away? Why would he do that? Listen, I cannot justify the motivation that Sarah you know, I can't justify her jealousy or her paternal instinct and say what she did was right. But the fact is, God used just that in order to force Abraham's hand to set aside his, his son. Now, here's why. You see, Ishmael had been Abraham's pride and joy. You remember in Genesis 17, when God comes and says, I'm going to give you another son. And he says, well, what about Ishmael? Mate, can he live before? Remember that? He had aspirations for Ishmael. He wanted, he saw Ishmael as, as his firstborn son. See, as long as Ishmael, the son of the flesh, was around, Abraham would always consider him an heir. Are you with me? See, he would always have to share time with Isaac. But God said, no, no. The flesh has no place in this. This is Isaac. Isaac is the heir. Isaac is the son of promise. So you've got to get rid of that son of the flesh. That's why he had to go, because you cannot have peaceful coexistence between the flesh and the spirit. You just cannot do it. And as long as those two boys were in that household, as long as Hagar and Sarah were there, there was going to be conflict. There was going to be a pull between the flesh and the spirit. And, and, and God says, no, we can't have that, and he's got to go. Now... God does that. He did, it, he did it in Abraham's life. He does it in our life. But God also graciously softens the pain when he has to do it. Look at verse 13. He says, Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. You see, God takes us through painful times. Sometimes God asks us to do painful things. But he always does it with compassion. He doesn't just come in and say, you need to get rid of this and don't ask any questions. He's very compassionate about what he does. By the way, not only is he compassionate with Abraham, but as we'll see in the next verses, he's also compassionate with Hagar and Ishmael. Look at verses 14 through 18. 
So Abraham arose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. And then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, which would basically be as about as far as you can shoot an arrow. And for she said to herself, I don't want to see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God, by the way, notice it does not say he heard her voice. He heard the boy's voice. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. I love the point in this passage. You, 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 a lot of us, we read things and just move on. And I do that a lot too. We're kind of guilty of that. But if you stop, see, sometimes we think, how many of you, well, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are praying for somebody, especially a family member? You've got a child or a brother or somebody that's astray, and you think you're the only one that hears. You're the only one that understands. You're, you're the only one that cares. And so we're crying out to God. But what we need to understand is God has already heard their cry before He hears ours. He didn't say, oh, Hagar, I heard your cry. No, he said, I heard that. I, I, I know he's in trouble. See, that's, God cares for them more than we care for them. How, how easy it is to forget that. We think we're the only one that cares for that poor soul, whoever it be, but God cares. In fact, he loves them more than we love them. So even in, in difficult times of pain, God cares. God has compassion for those that, who call out to him. I was thinking as I was going, I couldn't help but think as I'm going through this, the life of faith, of, of thinking about the Olympics. You know, we all watch the Olympics every four years, and, and it's all exciting, the races or the swimming or the skiing or whatever the case may be. And we sometimes think about all the pain those people go through for four years. The getting up in the mornings and the practicing and the, and the injuries, and even when they don't want to go through it, all, the, all for the chance... Not the guarantee, but just the chance of being able to stand on a platform and, and hold a gold medal, right? All the, all the work and the effort and the pain and all of that. Listen, and, and by the way, it's not, a, it's not um, an accident or a coincidence that Paul compares the Christian life to that. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Do you not know? That in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, something temporary. You do it to receive something eternal. See, the fact is, we know this life of faith is going to end in great joy. Great. It's a guarantee. In fact, the Bible says we have an inheritance in heaven that is guaranteed, set aside, waiting for us to get there. This life of faith, the joy and the pain, and it all combines together, we know it's going to end in great joy. But the path is often through great pain. The fact is, some of you this morning may be going through painful trials. And you may be confused and, and even disappointed 
and, 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 and grieving. And maybe you didn't expect the Christian life to be like this. And, and sometimes what makes it even harder is God doesn't tell you why He's taking you through those things. That makes it even harder. Because we just have to trust like Abraham. Abraham, I'm sure, didn't understand why he had to send that boy away. But he obeyed, right? Because he knew, he trusted that God knew what he was doing. So God asks us, submit, you know, what a lot of times what God is doing in our life is He's pruning, isn't He? That's what John 15 tells us. He, it, when we, we, we're growing and maturing, He comes in, He prunes, so we'll bring more forth. That pruning process isn't easy. It can be a painful process. But if we yield to that, trusting Him, knowing that He knows what He's doing, the fact is you'll ultimately experience in your life the joy of seeing what God can do. And, that, and there is a joy there like no other. Now, the life of faith. We talked about it's a life of joy, but it's also a life of pain. The third thing in this chapter, it tells us, it is a, it is a life of the ordinary. Okay? There's a passage here at the end, and we, we've, I don't know what verse it is now, I, don't, I can't remember which one we're at, but you get to the end, you've, you've got all this about, about Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar, and right at the end is these verses that, to be quite honest with you, if you were just reading Genesis, you would just go on. In fact, you, might, you wouldn't even give it a minute's thought. You'd just move right on. But of course, in this class, we don't do that, do we? We study everything. So, my, when I read this, I start asking, why is this here? What, what is this about? What's the, what's the point of this? You see... Sometimes when we read the Bible, we've been in, by the way, today, well, next week will be one year that we've been in Genesis. We went from, we started in January 8th of, of 2018, so we've been in it right at one year. We've seen some amazing things, haven't we? We've seen God speak the universe into existence. We've seen, seen Him create human beings out of the dirt. We've seen Him destroy the earth with a, uh, with a flood. We've seen Him destroy a valley with fire and brimstone. We've seen Him bring a son to a woman who's 90 years old. We've seen Him do some spectacular things. And by the way, if we kept reading, we're going to see Him do even more things into Exodus. We'd see uh, the plagues in Egypt and, and parting the Red Sea and and manna from heaven, and water from a rock, and, and it goes on and on. See, sometimes I think when we read the Bible, if we're not careful, we tend to think God majors in the spectacular. But the problem is, we don't live in the spectacular, do we? We live in the everyday ordinary, right? That, that's where most of us live. There's not that many Billy Grahams around, is there? There's just a lot of people getting up, mowing their yard, paying their bills, getting their groceries, taking their kids to school, just doing ordinary stuff. And when you really think about Abraham, he's an ordinary guy. Other than the birth of Isaac, there really not a lot happened in his life. He got up every day. He's 100 years old. He gets up every day and he, he settles squabbles in the family and he, he makes sure his livestock's fed and he manages the household and he, he just does normal everyday stuff day after day after day after day. As I said, he had that one great miracle, but other than that, he's pretty routine. So why would God include this little passage at the end of, of chapter 21 about an ordinary current occurrence in the life of an ordinary man. Well, I think the reason is because it shows the faithfulness of God in the ordinary. It shows the faithfulness of God 
in the ordinary. Let, let, me, let me tell you why I think this. We started back in chapter 12 talking about Abraham, and God gave him two great promises, two very great promises. I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, right? Those are the two great promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And in both of those promises, Abraham resorts to his own power, right? With the son, he, nothing was happening, so he goes into Hagar, and he produces a son called Ishmael. His own flesh, his own power, his own, his own schemes. And by the way, on the other promise, the land of Canaan, remember he goes into the land and he's scared that they're going to kill him for his wife, so he tells lies, doesn't he? So in both of these great promises, Abraham resorts to his own schemes to, to make it happen. But they weren't needed, were they? God intervened in all, of, in both of those promises to bring them about God provided in the spectacular. But what about the ordinary? Does God provide in the ordinary as well? Or does He just leave us to our own? That's a good question, isn't it? Is God just sitting around waiting for you to have some great health scare so He can step in and do something spectacular? Or is He there every single day, every single minute? When you're in Winn-Dixie or you're driving down the road or you're paying that bill, is He there in the ordinary. Well, I think this passage answers that question. Let's read verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Y'all remember Abimelech, right? Abraham comes down, he says, boy, I got a good looking wife. So he says, she's my sister. And Abimelech takes her. And God comes to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man. You're a dead man if you sleep with that woman because she's somebody else's wife. And Abimelech's like, whoa, I didn't know, right? So after all this has happened, Abimelech and the commander of his army come down to Abraham and say, God is with you in all that you do. Now here is the king of the land, right? The guy that Abraham was so scared of that was going to kill him. He, he comes with the commander of his army and he comes to Abraham. Abraham doesn't have to go to him. Abraham doesn't seek out this treaty. This is the king of the land. They initiate it. They come to, to Abraham. Now, we understand why Abimelech would do this, right? Because he knows Abraham is a man of influence. He's a man of power. But beyond that, he's a man chosen and blessed by God. God says, that's my prophet right there. Good or, for good or for bad, that's my boy. So Abimelech knows that. God's already told him that. So he wants a treaty with Abraham because he don't, he don't want to go to battle with Abraham. Because going to battle with Abraham will be going to battle with God. And, and by the way, to have an alliance with Abraham is to have an alliance with God. That's the way he sees it. So you can understand why he would go to, to Abraham. So, by the way, with no scheming on Abraham's part, no plans, no lies, no deception, no nothing, God initiates all this. God has Abimelech come to Abraham and say, let's make a treaty. Just an ordinary day... Just an ordinary treaty, an ordinary alliance between two ordinary men, men, all orchestrated by God. See, this is what, if Abraham would have just trusted God in the beginning, this could have all just happened, couldn't it? I mean, he didn't need all that scheming and planning and deception to try to save his life. God was there in the ordinary. Just let God do what God ordinarily does. And this is showing God saying, I'm going to take care of you, Abraham. And he initiates this through Abimelech. By the way, do you see the lesson this should have taught Abraham? 
he's lied to Abimelech about Sarah because he thought none of these people here in this land fear God. They, they, you know, they're going to kill me. So, so I need to lie. I need to deceive them in order to protect myself. But God rebukes the unbelief of Abraham and he does it through the mouth of a pagan. The pagan himself comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. God didn't even say it. Uh, the pagan said it. I mean, how did, you know, Abraham had to feel rebuked when he, when he said that. Look at verse 23 to 24. This is Abimelech. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Okay, so we, we've made this alliance. Now, again, we can understand Abimelech's request, right? Swear you ain't going to lie to me no more. Swear you're not going to deceive me anymore. Why? Because Abraham lied to him. Abraham deceived him. So Abimelech says, swear to God. Don't swear to yourself. Don't swear by your word because I don't trust you. Swear by God that you won't do this anymore. And Abraham says, okay. You see, Abimelech respected God, but Abraham not so much. Didn't really trust him too much, too much. By the way, he's already nearly lost his life because of Abraham. He don't want that to happen, uh, any, anymore. Now, at this point, a very interesting thing happens. Abraham is going to be tested. He has just sworn, you know, the way I am, how I've lied to you and deceived you, and you know how I always kind of rely on my flesh to make things happen? He's fixing to be tested. Are you going to do that again? So he brings up a specific grievance that he has with Abimelech. So here he is. He's decided, okay, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the truth. Here's a problem that I have. No schemes, no lies, no deception. He has to suppress his fear and just deal honestly and truthfully with the king of the land and trust God to handle the situation. Well, there's a lesson in that for us. I mean, because we come across things every day where it, if I just tell, just if I just twist it just a little, it'll sound so much better. If I just tell this little white lie, they'll look at me so differently. And Abraham says, okay, I'm just going to tell you the truth. And we're going to let God, we're going to let the chips fall where they may. Let God deal with this situation. Look at verse 25 to 26. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized... So, so basically, they've got a well that Abraham's been using to feed his family, to feed his flocks. And Abimelech's servants come and seize it. They take it away from him, put a guard on it, so he can't use it anymore. So he's asking Abimelech, well, what about this, this well situation? Verse 26, Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing. I've not heard of it. Nobody's told me of it until today. This is the first I'm hearing of it, Abimelech says. Verses 27 to 29. So Abraham took two sheep or took sheep and oxen, and he gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What does this mean? What are these seven ewe lambs? What's the meaning of this that you've set them apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. This is my well. This will be the witness. And so Abimelech took them. Okay, so they resolved the situation. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. And that means well of the oath or well of the seven. Because both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up. 
and return to the land of the Philistines. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you and I, okay? But you need to understand, in that day, a well was a very, very big deal. They lived in a desert land. A well was where you, it, it was everything to you. It's how you fed and watered your flocks. It's how you, you, you watered your family or, or got water for your family. It was essential for survival. Without a well, you died. There's no way you could stay there. So it's necessary for, for everything that you do. So this is a, a well would be huge in, in, in that day. And remember, Abimelech wanted this covenant not only to be for him, but he said, for my posterity. In other words, this covenant that we're going to make is going to go down through our descendants. So when he gives that well, or, or when he basically says, yes, that well belongs to you, Abraham is securing a well not only for him, but for Isaac and Isaac's children and Isaac's children's children and on. Everybody with me? And and, and by the way, Abraham didn't have to do anything. God took care of all this. No schemes, no lies, no, no deception, no any of that. God just brought all this to pass on an ordinary day through an ordinary treaty between two ordinary men. You see, what this is telling us is God provides for our ordinary needs. We don't have to lie. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to rely on the flesh. Just trust God, and he will take care of it. See, here's the lesson that Abraham should have learned. He came into that land fearing for his own life. He came into that land and, and thinking, man, they're going to they're take my wife, right? He should have just trusted God, but he didn't. So he relied on him. He, he relied on himself. Now, God is, is driving the point home to Abraham. Abraham, you came to this land thinking they would take your wife. They can't even take your well. I will not allow them to take your well. You didn't have to scheme to get that. You didn't have to lie to protect that. I'll take care of you. I'll initiate it. They came to you. So why are you worrying about all these big things when I, I'll take care of all I'll take care of all the little things? Just trust me and I'll provide for your daily ordinary needs. I think that's why this is here. Because it sees it sees Abraham backing up and just telling the truth. And then God takes care of, of everything. You see, the fact is, the great, the great, great portion of our fears in this life are completely unfounded. All of Abraham's schemes and plans and relying on the flesh were for absolutely nothing. See, faith can rest upon the promises of God. And that, that's it. That's all we need if we will just do it. Verses 33 to 34, and we'll close. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham, as we've seen, he's not perfect, okay? But he is growing and maturing in faith, okay? Just like we are. And planting that tree there at that well, planting that tamarisk tree, was an act that reminded... By the way, that tree needs water, right? So he plants a tree that needs water from the well. It's an act that every time he sees that tree, it reminds him that God provides. God provides. Not just in the big promises, not just in the spectacular, but God provides in the ordinary, even for the water to grow a, a tree. And by the way, he uses a name of God here for the very first time, the everlasting God. 
This is the very first time we ever see this used in the Bible. And this bears witness to the fact, by the way, that Abimelech, that, that Abraham is not trusting in a treaty with Abimelech. That's not the source of his security. That's not the source of his protection. He's trusting in the everlasting, ever faithful God. That is going to be his, his dwelling place. Next week, we turn to uh, Genesis 22 with one of the most controversial uh, passages of Scripture in the Bible. Um, even today, you walk out and talk to unbelievers, they will refer back to this and say, I don't understand that. And we will try to understand it uh, next week. Genesis 22, if you want to read ahead. Let's pray. Father.